Um, it's so good to be here with you all this morning. Um, I have to do a quick shout out to all the blue shirts. Um, I just need, yeah, yeah. So everybody, everybody who went to camp or helped with camp or spoke at camp, can y'all just stand up for a second? Like, you don't have to have your blue shirt on. It's okay. It's okay. Y'all. <laughs> I just, um, I have to give a shout out. These kids and all throughout the audience, um, they are amazing. And they just had a week at camp and they love well and they serve well and they encourage well and they worship well. Um, and so for you parents out there, way to go. You are raising um, really great humans. And for you as a church, Get excited because there is a mighty army rising up who loves Jesus. So, um, and I, I have to shout out to the adults too. Like we may have like not gotten all of our beauty rest and we may have yelled till we lost our voices or um, made a fool of ourselves doing lip sync. Um, but we also got to make really strong connections with these kids and reflect with them and um, be inspired by them. And so thank you to all the adults too. Um, okay, so this morning, I'm going to talk to you about something um, that is really convicting and exciting and scary um, for me. And that is um, radical hospitality. And I'm not getting to talk to you about it because I've really nailed the practice of daily radical hospitality. Um, in fact, studying for this has convinced me that I'm really, really um, just starting to understand what it means. Um, but what I can say without a doubt um, is that I believe this Acts 2 um, radical hospitality that we're going to talk about has the power um, to change the world. And I'm excited to get to share with you a little bit. So Acts 2, this is going to be our main verse. We're sticking with the Acts Church on Fire series. So Acts 2, verses 32 through 34. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Y'all, this is mind-blowing stuff. They shared everything. They had no one had a need among them. I'm going to be just real honest. Sometimes um, it would be a lot easier to just kind of skip over verses like this because of like the great accountability it calls us into. And it might be easier to say this was just something the early church experienced, but this is the church that we model ourselves after. This is the church that we say we are trying to emulate. 
This is the church that Jesus established and sealed with the ultimate act of radical hospitality to the point of cruel death to fulfill our most pressing need. So we too would want for nothing. This is an all-in church on fire. When I read this, I have to wonder, what does Jesus see when he looks at the church today? And what would happen if everything we do has the underlying intention of spreading the love of Jesus to those around us, truly loving our neighbor as ourselves? Imagine growing up, if you will, surrounded not only by loving family, but an entire community who loves you. Your setting is beautiful green mountains and lush valleys filled with the food that nourishes your body. You walk together with friends to collect your morning and evening water, catching up on the latest news. The work is hard, but you do it together. You cook by fire and you sleep when it's dark. There's no electricity, no internet, no grocery stores. If someone has a need, you look to fulfill that need. You celebrate and mourn with each other. You know intimate details about each other's lives. You've had the same friends. You've shared secrets and dreams together. Imagine now, in the blink of an eye, everything changes. One morning you wake up and you are now the target of persecution. You, who just walked last night to a well with a friend, you are now the enemy of that very friend. Everybody wants to be king of the world because nobody likes to admit when they're wrong. Yes, I want to be an honest man. Stop running and stand still. And if I can, again, I need a kill. Earth, my mother, scream my name. People of the world are went insane because the children now grow up being told it's the money that you make and not what you Just then, a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? And he said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Now, go do it. Looking for a loophole, he asked, but how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There once was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the road. But when he saw the injured man, he angled to the other side of the road. Then the Levite religious man showed up, and he also avoided the injured man. Then a Samaritan, traveling the same road, came upon the injured man. And when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfected his wounds, he lifted him onto his donkey and took him to an inn and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper and said, if we, you need more than this, take care of him, do whatever you need, I'll pay you when I come back through. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor? Well, the one who treated him with kindness and mercy. The scholar responded. And Jesus said, go, do the same. In 1994, in Rwanda, when a horrible genocide had broken out, turning friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor, father against son, some took the dangerous road of radical hospitality. They proved hospitality was not only for times of joy and pleasure, but for times of heartache and danger. To some who took seriously the battle cry of Jesus to love neighbor as self, it meant risking their own lives in order to try and save another. This reckless hospitality meant not only sharing food and shelter, it meant sharing their very life with those left desperately searching for protection and hope. One of those searching hope was Immaculate Ilibagiza, and she found it at the home of Pastor Marinci, who her father had sent her to. Though many connected to faith at that time had lost their way, abandoned what they knew was right, and even became breeding grounds of terror, hate, and death, some remained true to the calling of Jesus' deep, compassionate, intimate love on their life. They hid people in their homes, sacrificed their safety and security, and were sometimes killed as a result. Pastor Marinzi took that risk and hid not only Immaculate, but seven other women in a four-foot by three-foot wide bathroom in his home for 90 days. 90 days of terror. That bathroom door was covered by a wardrobe. There were times when the house was raided and they could hear the men outside in the bedroom looking for them, in the attic above them searching for them. You can read details of this harrowing story um, in a beautiful book called Left to Tell, but I'm gonna spoil the ending, sorry. I'm happy to say that all those women escaped their lives were spared, and Immaculate has spent her life since then 
telling others about the love of a pastor who risked it all for her and the other women and the power of hospitality, forgiveness, reconciliation, and love. Here are a couple of my favorite quotes from her. And I'm going to have to turn this way because I don't have my glasses on. Every single day when I wake up in the morning, I hope I can use my life for something beautiful. Use my life to touch another human being. Love heals. When you care for another person, love comes back to you somehow. It really is all about love. Life is your gift, and it is up to you how you choose to use it. To love or to hate. To uplift or to tear down. To be kind or to be mean. If you choose love, I am with you. So beautiful. This is from a woman coming out of sheer terror. And this is what she decided to stick with. In 2018, my family was blessed to be able to travel to Rwanda. And on our first morning there, we went to church. And the church was so kind, they provided us interpreters so we could understand what was going on. They even celebrated American Mother's Day, which was so sweet. And they lavished gifts on me and my mom. It was a beautiful time. My interpreter's name was Evelyn. And as moms do, we began to talk about our kids. And before I knew it, she let me know that she had a son, Ben, who was in America. He was in Tennessee. He was on a scholarship to uh, play soccer for Treveca. And here's the dinger. He was about to transfer to Lipscomb University where he would be pursuing or finishing his engineering degree. You can imagine all of our shock when I was like, um, Tim and I graduated from Lipscomb. We actually live really close, so we'll be contacting your son as soon as we get home. So um, that's exactly what we did. Um, we um, became very close to Ben. Um, he became like another member of our family. He um, was at our home. He came on breaks and holidays, and he ended up getting to live with us for just a little bit after he graduated. But we got to celebrate birthdays with him, college graduation, um, him getting his driver's license. Tim could tell you a harrowing story of surviving that happening. Um, and even we got to see him purchase his first car. So that all happened. <laughs> we knew all of that was providence of God. So um, his parents, though, during this time were so grateful. They were so grateful, telling us what a blessing we had been to him. And we knew, we knew the whole time that he had been the blessing to us. So um, fast forward, Thomas and I went to Rwanda in 2021. And we had hoped to meet up with Ben's parents, but because of COVID restrictions, we didn't, we didn't get to. So just a few weeks ago, um, Nikki Fox, Elena Stockstill, and Melinda McCultsick and I traveled to Rwanda to check in on the school, Fourth Helps Support for Kids with Special Needs. And we got to host a little retreat and a lot of other fun things. But we also got to have dinner with Ben's parents, finally, finally got to meet his dad. 
So before we sat down to dinner, we saw this photo. We inquired about the photo and found out that after the genocide, Ben's parents had taken in 36 children. You did not misunderstand me. I said 36 children, ranging in age from three till teenagers, most of whom had been orphaned because of the genocide. Um, can you imagine for just a minute, 36 extremely traumatized children under one roof, all being loved and cared for? Um, there was little to no money. Ben's dad was a doctor and he was being paid in rice and beans. And you would think, oh my goodness, that's so terrible. But he told it to us in such a joyful way. We just felt so excited that they had rice and beans because he was like, oh, it was so great because we had all these children and we needed food. I'm just saying. We sat in shock and amazement. Um, over the next three years, they were able to find relatives of some of these children, but the ones in the picture, they took to completion. They raised them as their own children. <sighs> Y'all, we were so completely humbled. We <laughs> were just shocked how easily they talked about this. I was in shock because Ben had lived with us. He'd never mentioned this. This was so just a normal, everyday, that's the kind of way you love people thing. He had never mentioned it to us. Um, <laughs> the parents talked about, you know, Evelyn would say how it was sometimes difficult trying to help 36 kids with homework. <laughs> uh, yeah, one is hard. Um, and they, they talked about how, you know, sometimes they would take turns going to try to you know, spend time with the one who was crying in the corner, except the one was sometimes 12. Their hearts exude <laughs> radical hospitality. Their home was not their own. Their food was not their own. Their hearts were not their own to protect and put walls around. Their time, their energy, their very lives a sacrificial kingdom work. And to be honest, I find this kind of lifestyle extremely hard to even fathom, much less live out. Um, in a book I read recently called Irresistible Revolution, thanks Elena, um, the thought of living out radical hospitality is deeply explored by a group living daily, the simple yet profoundly difficult community lifestyle we read about in Acts 2. I was deeply impacted by the author's words. Um, he says, layers of insulation separate the rich and the poor from truly encountering one another. We wear clothes manufactured in harsh conditions where teenage girls work for 31 cents an hour and they're sold to us under a facade that some of the money from the sales of these clothes will be going to a charity while the children making these clothes are being trafficked and exploited. Charity can be a dangerous insulator. He goes on to say Jesus is not seeking distant acts of charity 
He seeks concrete acts of love. Generosity is a virtue not just for those with a special spiritual gifting or admirable philanthropic passion. It is the very heart of our rebirth in Jesus. Popular culture has taught us to believe that charity is a virtue. But for Christians, it's only what is expected. True generosity is measured not by how much we give away, but by how much we have left. The early Christians used to write that when they did not have enough food for a hungry person who would come to their door, they would all fast until they could all enjoy a meal together. I'm going to be real honest. Like, I don't know this kind of hospitality. I don't practice this kind of hospitality. They also said that if a child starves while a Christian has extra food, then the Christian is guilty of murder. Now that sounds super harsh. But the more I thought about it, the more it made a lot of sense. So, this is hard stuff. It's good stuff, but it's hard stuff. There is so much of me that wants to say, but surely this is not what God calls us to today, right? But then, if I say I believe my Bible, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So where do we start? What does it look like? What does it take? Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of the spiritual life and said that followers must ruthlessly eliminate hurry that it is incompatible with love. I recently heard another quote that said, being loved feels so much like being listened to that it's hard to tell the difference. So it seems radical hospitality, both in the early church and today, starts simply by slowing down enough to recognize the needs around us. Is there a kid in your neighborhood who needs a safe place for dinner? there a mom at the park who's always there alone? Is there someone at your school who sits alone every day? Is there a coworker who always seems to be one unexpected expense away from going under? Is there someone at the grocery store who you know wants to keep talking even though your groceries are getting hot and you need to go home and make dinner that just really needs you to make space for them? At the end of May 2021, um, Mary and I were out running some errands. She was five at the time. And things hadn't gone the way we planned. Um, we didn't really get accomplished much of what we were trying to. I forgot my cell phone at home again, which is a very common occurrence. And um, as it ends up, we came a different way home than we would have if um, things had gone the way they were supposed to. So as we approached the stoplight there at um, Liberty and Mallory, I think, anyway, it doesn't really matter what stoplight it was, um, 
I saw a man laying down on the ground, and it was a man I recognized, and um, he would sell the contributor. And he was always so joyful and happy, and sometimes some, of, some people called him the, the Jesus contributor seller because they believed he just had this presence about him. Anyway, um, he was laying down. Now, I need to tell you that God had put him on my heart to the point I had a specific amount of money to give him every time I saw him. And sometimes I didn't want to, but I had been faithful to that. And I want to be just truly vulnerable and honest. I was like, huh, he's laying down. I'm not even going to have to give him his money today. I know, like that's really terrible, but I thought it, and you need to know, like confession. But he saw us, and he got up, and he came over, and um, we were the first in line at the stoplight. And I was like, I said, are you, are you doing okay? Because he just didn't look like himself, and he said, no, I'm not. My life isn't even worth living. And I did the typical, oh, no, hey, of course it is. God loves you so much. And he looked at me, and he said, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Y'all, I got a quick conviction of the heart. And it was Holy Spirit saying, he does not need your words. And this is nothing inside of me. This is everything, God. He needs your action. And I said, hey, I'm going to turn around. Go meet me over there at the CVS. And long story short, I got over there and I said, hey, my name's Emily. What's your name? He said, Michael. I said, oh, that's my stepdad's name. This is my daughter, Mary. And I said, what do you, what do you need right now? Like, what do you need? And he said, rest. And my wife kicked me out last night. We got into a fight, and I had to sleep right over there in those woods. And he started tearing up. And he said, and it was cold, and I was scared, and I'm tired. And I said, hmm, I have a bed. Now, I'm not advocating that you pick up everybody you find on the road. Um, that's probably not safe, but maybe we shouldn't live safe. But God had put him on my heart, and he had been doing a work in me. And so this wasn't random. And this wasn't strange. And I said, do you want to come to my house? My husband's there with my other kids. Um, and he said yes. And I think both of us were in a little bit of shock. Um, but he got in the car. And um, I brought him home. And so I had forgotten my phone, remember. So I walk in, and I'm like, and Tim's working for a moment. I'm like, hey, Tim, I'm home. And he said, hey, and I'm like, I forgot my cell phone. He said, yeah, I know, I tried to call you. And I'm like, oh, sorry. I was like, um, hey, by the way, um, I have somebody with me. And I said, it's Michael that sells the contributor. And God is so sweet because Tim didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, hey, Emily's been wanting to meet you and get to know you better. <gasps> okay, so... I mean, most husbands may not respond that way, but um, I got lucky there. So long, it was, I mean, this is hard. This is interesting for kids to come in and, stranger. And, um, you know, we do talk about stranger danger, but Ty graciously gave up his bed. Thomas had no hesitation welcoming him. Mary had already gotten to know him. She already had a new friend. And he got to sleep, 
He got to hang out in the hammock. Yaf was coming over to play basketball. Um, he loved watching your kids play basketball. That was his favorite part of the day. Um, and come to find out, it had a really, really hard life. Um, I found out part of it when I made pasta for dinner and he refused to eat it. And I thought, it's not very nice. I made pasta. And he told me why, and then it made a lot of sense. He had only been fed pasta from the can um, and tuna fish casserole and cat food from zero until six. At which point he was taken away and bounced back and forth in foster care until he was nine years old. At that point, his dad came and got him, and things were on the up for him. But as teenagers do, um, at 17, uh, he tore his ACL, and he had been a football player. They had won the state championship the year before, and so some things were mounting in him, and he left his dad. Now, I'm happy to say they still have a relationship now, but he made some poor choices. Um, he got married at 21, and he and his wife have been married for 12 years back in 2021. They um, are not homeless. They live in an apartment. He works two jobs. Um, she can't work because of a disability, but bought a circuit machine. She wanted to start making shirts and cups. All of this to say, um, stopping and giving ourselves a chance to listen and see sometimes is all we need to do. Um, we didn't do anything for him, really. Um, but I do want to share um, the end of the story for us with him. The next day, Tim took him to get his papers. He was starting to talk to his wife. They were reconnecting. And that was great. That's what we wanted. Um, but after he had been selling for about one hour, he got a call, and he was told he could no longer sell papers in Franklin. He had been photographed laying down with his shoes off, and he can no longer sell in Franklin. And um, I just want to share, um, when I heard that, I was devastated for him. Um, he was sad about that, but he was still having a good attitude. Um, unfortunately, though, someone missed the chance of an unexpected meeting with him. Instead of seeing him as a person, he had been seen as a problem. And I just want to, in confession, say that all too often I see people as a problem and not as a person. Um, I told him I was going to contact the newspaper and let them know why he was unable to stand that day. And I did. Um, and he was grateful. He was grateful to be seen, to be humanized. Um, we were saying our goodbyes. He was going to go back to his wife. Thank you, Jesus. Um, and I was about to pull away, and he called out, Hey, Emily, you know what I said about God not loving me? I, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I was just having a bad day. He said, I know he loves me. And I said, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Um, here he is with Mary, her new best friend. Um, sometimes the next right thing is so obvious, um, so simple. You need a bed, we have a bed. 
You need someone to listen, we have ears. Um, you need support, we have things. Sometimes it's easy to disconnect our things from our mission. Um, when we can fully focus in on our purpose in this life to seek and save the lost, to share Jesus with another, to love our neighbor as ourselves, it's easier to remember that nothing we have is really ours to begin with. Our time, our energy, our resources, our heart, they all belong to God. In our small, everyday acts of service, I pray for us to not see how far we've come, but to realize how far we've yet to go. It's not in exploiting another person's weakness that we become strong. It's not in putting another person down that we're lifted high. It's not in hoarding our belongings that we become rich. Rather, it's in being able to embrace our own weakness that we share our strength with others. It's when we're humbled that we're raised. And it's when we give that we truly do receive. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. All too often, I live amid the hurry and the lies that say, there's nothing you can do. The problem is too large. The price is too high. The risk is too great. Cross to the other side. Pretend like nobody's there. Our fascination with the church in Acts 2, it isn't with the fact that they were the ones closest to Jesus on earth. Our fascination is with the fact that his gospel literally transformed and shaped their lives. His gospel became the gospel on the ground, hands and feet, serving, loving, taking care of, depending on each other kind of gospel. None raised higher or deemed lower. This isn't some made-up fairy tale world of love and light. This is a real place and a real people who bought into and lived out what Jesus preached and lived on earth. May we too be a people who relentlessly strive to eliminate the things that are keeping us from this radical love and hospitality.